Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly. It's the show that brings you all the science news in the world with a Three Sigma rating or higher. Oh, wow. You started with a physics joke. I'm I'm deeply sorry about that. Sorry. <laughs> anyway, welcome to the show. This week, we are joined by New Scientist Executive Editor Richard Webb and reporter Lael Liverpool. Hi, both. Hi. Hello. That, that joke was for you, Richard. Thanks. <laughs> well, we'll get on to why in a minute. Uh, this week, we've got a kind of time travel story, um, and we're going to hear about why human embryos can reverse the ageing process. And we've got a report from Mars with audio from the surface of Mars, which is amazing. (laughs) We also have the latest on COVID vaccine uptake. We hear about a life form unlike any other that has ever been discovered. And before all of that, it's time to quickly remind you that you can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist. So go to newscientist.com slash pod 20 to subscribe and get your discount. And also, after listening to this, do go and listen to our sister podcast, Escape Pod, to really get away from it all. You can find that wherever you get your podcasts. Now, first up, we've talked on and off on the podcast about the problems with the standard model of physics. uh, And the problems being that for all its brilliance, it doesn't explain gravity, and nor does it have anything to say about dark matter or dark energy. Uh, And we know that that makes up, uh, you know, 95% of the cosmos. So, you know... Is a problem with it, uh, and physicists would like to see something that that really challenges the standard model. And uh, this week, they might just have seen something, mightn't they? Richard, tell us about it. Um, yeah, well, I think it's really very important to emphasise, as you did, that might. We might even <laughs> need a mightier word than might. This is about a, possi- a very possible result from the Large Hadron Collider at CERN, and in particular from LHCB, one of four big experiments that sit at collision points around the Large Hadron Collider's ring. Now, the B in LHCB refers to the particle um, that it's concerned with with looking at the properties of the bottom or alternatively beauty quark. <laughs> yeah, I noticed the, the BBC call it the beauty quark, but you're calling it the bottom quark. But uh, <laughs> you know, I don't know why. I, I'm conforming to orthodoxy. Beauty ah. is, 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 is an old version. Put it OK, that good. Uh, so just remind us about quarks. They are the things that make up protons and neutrons, aren't they? 
Yeah, and there are six different kinds. The two lightest ones, the up and the down, are the ones that make up the protons and neutrons inside the atomic nucleus. But there are four other heavier quark flavours, as they're called. And if you want the full list, that's charm, strange, top and bottom, or alternatively, truth and beauty. Um, Now, particles containing bottom quarks are particularly interesting both because they're very heavy, meaning that when they're produced in high energy collisions at the LHC, there are a lot of lighter particles they can decay into. And they're also relatively long lived, making it easier to study those decays. So what LHCb has found, and this is where it gets a bit technical, but it is particle physics, (laughs) is that a particular type of particle containing a bottom quark called the B plus meson, decays into electrons, the familiar particles that buzz around the atomic nucleus, more often than it decays into a heavier cousin of the electron, the muon. Now, the standard model confidently predicts that these two decays should happen at the same rate once you do certain fiddly adjustments to take account of the fact that the muon and electron have different masses. This is a rule known as lepton universality, and it's absolutely central to the standard model. Okay, So if the thing decays at a different rate than predicted by the standard model, that's where we've got a a potential crack in the model. Yeah, it it might be. Use that (laughs) word might again. So this sort of decay anomaly could be the signature of a never before seen type of particle called a leptoquark. Uh, Now, a leptoquark bridges the worlds of quarks and and leptons, which is the family of particles that electrons and muons belong to. And it could provide a route to a a grand unified theory that would unite two theories called QED and QCD that are currently rather unsatisfactorily clutched together in the standard model. And that could perhaps give us a route towards further breakthroughs and perhaps begin to explain all that stuff like dark matter and dark energy. But we shouldn't get carried away. The fact (laughs) is that rumours of violations of this lepton universality have been around for a while. And this one at LHCB, for example, for the best part of a decade, what the news reports are based on is a paper released by the collaboration that the anomaly has passed a certain threshold, the three sigma level of statistical <laughs> significance and hence my hilarious joke at the beginning of the show. <laughs> hilarious now yeah. uh, thank you thank you for three, that <laughs> so three sigma for um for a particle physicist said says interesting it amounts to a probability of about one in a thousand or 0.1 percent that you would see a pattern of data like this if the standard model were correct Yeah, well, you know, I'm a biologist. And for me, like one in a thousand is that, yep, that's a nature paper right there, you know. (laughs) But I guess you've got higher standards, haven't you, you physicists? Yeah, yeah, always higher standards (laughs) than the biologists. Yeah, no, as I said, three sigma is this level at which an effect becomes interesting. So sit up and take notice, investigate further, but equally don't fall out of the pram. The history of particle physics is littered with three sigma effects that that have come and gone. And that's really just a consequence of statistical reality. What these type of experiments are doing is casting a wide net across a whole range of data, looking for tiny, tiny effects. And the wider you cast your net, the more likely you are to see some pattern that looks out of the ordinary at some maybe quite high level of statistical significance, 
but it's still just a random fluctuation. And, and that's why for anything to qualify as discovery, particle physicists have settled on a much higher test of statistical significance, five sigma. And that corresponds to a probability of about one in 3.5 million that a pattern of data like this is a statistical fluke. So when are we going to f- find out, you know, are they running more collisions to, you know, to try and bump up that sigma level? Well, I think the answer there is don't hold your breath. This this new result added data from collisions recorded at the LHC in 2017 and 2018. And, and since then, the LHCB has been in a long shutdown for an upgrade. Hopefully it's restarting later this year. But once it does, it'll be a good few years before this measurement is improved on, before we've got enough data to say much more. But what it also does do is it gives a clue that if there's something interesting to look at here, other experiments can go back and look through the data they've already collected and do newest analyses to find out if anything squares with it and backs it up. And uh, what's your hunch on this? And I know, you know, you've been getting really carried away in excitement about <laughs> how it's challenging the standard model. What's your hunch, Richard? Uh, well, actually, call me an old fogey, but I'm, I'm super, super, super sceptical anything's going to come out of this. Maybe that's that's bred of experience. I've, I've, I've seen too many of these blips come and go, both when I was working as a particle physicist and, and since I've been a journalist reporting on it. I'm, I'm more and more convinced, as are a lot of physicists, that any sign of physics beyond the standard model will be at energy levels beyond even those the LHC can can reach. But but hey, never say never, because if and when we do see that first longed-for sign of physics beyond the standard model, it's going to start with an anomaly like this. Now on to COVID news. And Leal, you're in Berlin. So what on earth is going on in the EU right now? Well, um, many EU countries have now uh, resumed their rollouts of the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine. Uh, But there are signs that the suspensions of the vaccine in in mid-March over blood clotting concerns have increased hesitancy about the vaccine in Europe. Yeah, that's the nightmare scenario, isn't it? Just as we get this third wave uh, across Europe. Yeah. So um, a poll that was done in the same week as many of the suspensions found that more than half of people surveyed uh, in France, Germany and Spain said they believe that the AstraZeneca vaccine is unsafe, uh, which is a rise from February. Skepticism around vaccines in general is quite prevalent in Europe and uh, particularly in France. Uh, There's a similar picture for COVID-19 vaccines as well. So why is that? Yeah. So uh, there's a bit of a history of negativity around vaccine safety and also mistrust in health authorities in France, uh, in particular, for historical reasons. So in the 90s, it was revealed that uh, French government officials had knowingly distributed blood products that were infected with HIV, for example. Uh, and in 1998, France temporarily banned a hepatitis B vaccine uh, due to isolated cases of multiple sclerosis. Um, In the end, an investigation didn't find uh, a causal link in that case, but the temporary ban still generated a lot of concern among the public. Okay, so for those reasons, there's sort of that baseline of increased vaccine skepticism in France, which may be influencing acceptance of COVID-19 vaccines and particularly the AstraZeneca vaccine. But even as we're seeing a third wave ramp up and, and Um, prompt vaccination is more important than ever, we're also seeing a rise in in skepticism about the vaccine in other EU countries? 
Yeah, so uh, experts I've spoken to here in Germany have said that the suspensions may have dented confidence in the vaccine here as well. Um, and the same has been seen in other EU countries. Um, and like you say, all of this increased vaccine hesitancy is is particularly worrying at the moment uh, because many European countries, including Germany and France, are experiencing a third wave uh, of infections now. And so vaccinating as many people as possible, as fast as possible, is vital, of course. Um, and the rate at which people in the EU are being vaccinated is already lagging uh, far behind rates in, in the US, uh, the UK or Israel, for example. So I was just having a look at uh, the latest figures on our world in data this morning. And as of 22 March, the EU as a whole had administered around 13 doses of a COVID-19 vaccine uh, per 100 people, compared with 38 in the US, uh, 45 in the UK and 113 in Israel. Thanks, Leo. Much more on all things COVID in this week's mag and at newscientist.com. Time out. Here's Chelsea to tell you about the newest addition to the New Scientist family of newsletters. Thanks, Rowan. This week, we're launching New Scientist America. It's a free weekly newsletter brought to you by me, our US-based news editor. And each week, I'll be sharing my favorite stories from the magazine, our upcoming New Scientist events, and great bits from our podcast. And I'll give you a sense of how they relate to life in the US and the rest of the Americas. To sign up, just visit NewScientist.com and click on Newsletters. New Scientist America joins our other free email newsletters. We have Richard's new one, Lost in Space Time. We have Wild Wild Life about the wonders of biodiversity. We've got parental guidance about parenting during the pandemic. Um, and loads more besides. So go to newscientist.com slash newsletter and sign up to all of them. All of them, yeah. <laughs> Especially mine. <laughs> <laughs> They're all fabulous and informative and... Best of all, they are free. Next up, we have a time travel story of sorts. So this isn't your usual time travel with physics and wormholes, though we do love those. This is biological time travel, the mystery of how older parents produce youthful offspring. Yeah, because our cells accumulate damage as they get older, it's been weird or it's been a mystery as to how you get an, an old, basically an old fertilized egg turning into a young embryo. So the embryo must have some way of reversing those signs of ageing that we see. And now scientists have figured it out. And um, will it help rejuvenate me? He said, uh, hopefully. <laughs> tad late for that, no? <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, but tell uh. us what they've done. <laughs> Sorry, that was harsh anyway. Anyway, just to rewind a second. So we've talked before about how age manifests itself in ourselves. So at a cellular level, aging can be measured by looking at the chemical marks on our DNA. So this is the entire field of epigenetics, the study of the chemical tags that get attached to our DNA. And these correlate well with chronological age, so it can be used to track aging in cells and tissues. So what we're reporting on this week, scientists wondered sort of exactly when this aging process starts. It was thought that germline cells, the line of cells in the body that make sperm and eggs, is immune to this kind of epigenetic aging. But it turns out that's not the case. Okay, so that means that, say, if you're, uh, you know, 30 or 40 when you get pregnant, that the, the embryo is made from an epigenetically old egg and sperm. And so the embryo kind of starts off old? Yeah, so this is the thing. The embryo can then reverse the aging process. Wow. It manages to make itself biologically younger than its parents. Right. So how does it do that? 
We don't know yet exactly how, but the biologists looked at epigenetic aging in mouse eggs and they found basically that the fertilized eggs were old, but as the thing forms into a ball of cells, the blastocyst, the epigenetic marks disappear and reach a lowest point as the blastocyst implants into the uterus wall. Then it starts aging again. Well, that's kind of that's kind of melancholy, isn't it? To think that the, the early embryo is just implanted and it's already showing like measurable signs of aging. Is that the same in humans then as in mice? And, and does it suggest a mechanism that then we can use to reset the aging process? Well, it seems to be similar in humans, though that's harder to study because you're, for ethical reasons, you're not allowed to grow human embryos beyond 14 days in the lab. But as I say, it seems to be similar. And yes, it does suggest that there, there is this rejuvenation mechanism that rolls back aging. And there was some related human embryo news this week, wasn't there? Yeah. So, you know, yeah, you just mentioned blastocysts and you were saying how, you know, it's ethically tricky, <laughs> to say the least, uh, to work with human embryos. Um, but this week, scientists have made uh, published a way to make blastocysts from skin cells, or at least like blastocyst-like structures that they're calling eye blastoids, like it's a kind of iPod or something, an iPhone, <laughs> eye blastoids. Everybody loves the like lowercase. Um, I know, please. Start of there. Come on. Yeah, all over the place. Anyway, so I was looking at this story, and it seems that eye blastoids can be used to look at lots of things we want to know about um, human eggs, like embryonic development and causes of infertility. But this way we can study them without using actual human embryos. Yeah. So the team say that these things can't develop into fetuses, even if they were implanted. But it does still raise ethical and legal questions. And one of them is, should we be allowed to grow them for longer than the 14 days, that that time limit, even though they're not real human embryos? So what are they going to do? I think for now, they're just going to treat these eye blastoids as if they were real embryos until the law catches up. Now it's time for Life Form of the Week, when we celebrate some lovely organism. Rowan, what have we got this week? Well, it's a microbe, so it's nothing much to look at, but it gets the Life Form of the Week slot because it's got something really weird going on with it. Um, it turns out not to have the molecular equipment it needs to copy DNA. Well, isn't that kind of a, a bit of a dead end, as it were, for a life form? <laughs> yeah, you'd think. Um, if you can't copy your DNA, you are at a dead end. Uh, you know, it's one of the definitions of life itself. It's, you know, it's so important thing to be able to do. So is this like a an undead microbe, a, a zombie microbe? <laughs> yeah, that would be cool, but... Um, no, no, it's not. It, it, it must. What it must have is some completely new and unknown way of copying its DNA. Okay, so more like an alien than a zombie. Right. Yeah. So yeah, this thing is a eukaryote, which is the the group of complex organisms that includes us and fungi and trees and all the big things. So it's got a large and complex cell, like animals and plants. But when the biologists sequenced its genome, they found that it was missing genes that are crucial for coding for the proteins that start DNA replication. And until now, all free-living eukaryotes that have been sequenced had had these genes. So if it's lost them, then it must have found some other way of doing it? It must have, but it's still like it was still massively shocking to find an organism that doesn't have them. So it's unique. And the biologists resequenced the thing over and over again for a year to make sure they, they really had missed them. Um, and they had. 
So it's a missing sequence. Um, and this missing sequence is called the origin recognition complex. And it was thought before this to be um, fundamental, to be a fundamental piece of machinery. So does this microbe have a name? Yeah, it has a, a really quite a lovely name. Uh, it's Carpediomonas membranifera. So that, that carp- rolls right off the tongue. <laughs> <laughs> Carpediem, does that ring a bell? It's the, the, the Latin phrase Carpediem, uh, sees the day. So, and monus means single-celled organism. Okay, well, I find that a bit easier to say, the seize the day organism. Yeah, um, apparently the thing was discovered in the Great Barrier Reef, and when it was first described, it's, oh, it's a bit sad, but one of the, the wife of one of the scientists had just died, and he named it Seize the Day in her memory. Oh, wow. And now it's time to check in on what's happening with rovers and helicopters on Mars with our space reporters, Chelsea White and Leah Crane. Thanks, guys. Recently, we got some news about the Ingenuity helicopter. Leah, what's up? It's going to fly. Yep. Around April 8th, give or take a few days, Ingenuity is going to make its first test flight. I'm so excited. Even though the specifics of the flight might not be that exciting, the fact that it is the first powered aircraft flight on another world definitely is. Yeah, I I will admit I was a bit disappointed to hear that it's just going to go up three meters, turn around and come back down again. But I guess it's still cool that we're just trying to get a drone to fly on Mars at all. Yeah, and we were really lucky because the helicopter needs a flight zone that's nice and flat so it can land safely but it has to have enough rocks and stuff that it can use them for navigation. And the area right next to the Perseverance rover landing site just happened to be perfect. Did it just happen to be perfect or did NASA plan it? It just happened to be. (laughs) Well, what would they have done if it were, I don't know, really bumpy? They would have driven somewhere else. Oh, right. It's a, it's a rover. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah. and, And that good luck is why we get to see the flight so soon. And Perseverance has already been on Mars for more than a month, so hasn't it already done some driving? Yeah, it actually drove past the flight area, so now it has to drive back. It also has a microphone on it, and we've actually heard some audio of it driving. So that was the sound from the rover, and I'd like to note that this is only marginally more impressive to me than the first audio (laughs) Perseverance sent back. Um, It doesn't sound great, but that's mostly just because the wheels are made of metal, so they're making this grinding sound as the rover rolls along. We've never had a microphone on Mars before, so there is one high-pitched scratching sound that the engineers didn't expect, and they're investigating what's making that noise now. I love a good space mystery, don't you? Yeah, I am... Very interested to find out what it is, and I hope it's nothing bad. (laughs) Yeah, me too. Anyway, back to Ingenuity. So aside from driving back to the test flight area, what has to happen before the flight? Like, why can't it just fly now? Well, so once the rover gets to the right spot, it'll drop off the helicopter, which has been sort of folded up underneath it. And then within 25 hours, the rover has to drive away. Why? Why? Why that time limit? So... It's a little bit complicated. While Ingenuity is connected to Perseverance, it's using the rover's power. But once it's disconnected, it can only last through one lunar night on its own without recharging. So the rover has to get out of the way so that Ingenuity can get enough sunlight to charge. And then after after it charges, it still has to test its rotors and all of its scientific instruments before it can actually fly. And then what will the rover be doing during that time? 
So while Ingenuity is getting ready, Perseverance is going to sort of scoot away and observe the flight from a safe distance. <laughs> like a proud parent. Exactly. And, and it's going to take video. And even though the flight itself might not be all that acrobatic, uh, the footage is still going to be incredible. I do love just about every video we get from Mars. Um, and it's very cool that we live in a time when I can say that, right? Uh, I completely agree. <laughs> and then after that first flight, the next flights are going to go actually a little bit higher up to about five meters. And they might be a little bit less boring, for lack of a better word. <laughs> uh, and if everything goes well, there will be a month of regular test flights. And then Perseverance can stop spectating ingenuity and get down to doing its own science. It's actually already started a little bit. In the month that it's been on Mars, it hasn't just been, you know, sitting around. It's been taking lots of pictures and even zapping some of the nearby rocks with its laser to figure out what they're made of. What are they made of? Rocks. <laughs> All right, yeah. But what kind of rocks? They're volcanic rocks, and some of them even have water locked up in their molecular structure. I read a paper recently that said most of the water that Mars once had is probably locked up in rocks like that. Yeah. And we can even see signs of water shaping the rocks near the landing site. The crater where it landed probably used to be a lake, and some of the rocks appear to have been shaped by flowing water from that lake. And Perseverance isn't the only mission up there helping us learn about ancient Mars. There have been some big results from the InSight lander recently, too, right? Yes. The InSight lander measures seismic activity on Mars, and it's felt more than 500 Mars quakes so far in the year or so it's been up there. Is there a reason we care about Mars quakes? Well, yeah. Um, the, the big reason is that they bounce around inside Mars. And how they bounce can tell us a lot about the structure of the planet's interior. One of the main goals of InSight was to measure how big the core of Mars is. And they found that it has a radius of little more than 1,800 kilometers. Huh. Is that basically what we expected? Yeah, it's a little bit on the high end. So the core may be less dense than we thought. But... Basically, it's in the realm of what we expected, and hopefully we'll get more information in the near future because Mars is exiting the dust storm season, so things will be a lot calmer there, and InSight will be able to see more Mars quakes. But that's all the Mars news for right now, so I'm going to send it back to y'all in London. Thanks, Leia. Thanks, Chelsea. Well, look, I didn't know that Mars had a dust storm season I think it's amazing what we're learning about the planet. And I do like playing audio from Mars on our podcast. It's audio from Mars. <laughs> and looking forward to that helicopter flight. It's brilliant stuff. That's all for this week. Thanks to our guests, Richard Webb and Leal Liverpool for joining us. And just before we go, remember, do listen to our sister show, Escape Pod. This week, it's all about flow. Yeah, that's flow as in the psychological state of being in the zone. Also, we haven't talked about the cover story of the mag this week. It's all about nature and mental health and the science behind the benefits that um, being in nature gives you for your mental health. Well worth checking out. And remember, as a valued listener to our podcast, you can get a discount subscription to New Scientist. You get 20% off if you go to newscientist.com slash pod 20 and subscribe. That's it. Goodbye for now and take care out there. Goodbye. Bye. 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 This podcast is produced by Oli Giyu Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.